how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Lamentations. Well, it's appropriate that having looked at uh, Jeremiah, we go on to look at Lamentations. They're put together in your Bible precisely because here we have Jeremiah weeping. It's one of the saddest books in the whole Bible. I would put it alongside Job, but Job is sad because of a personal tragedy, whereas Jeremiah is weeping over a national catastrophe, something that has happened to his whole people, his whole nation, and particularly to the city which he loves, Jerusalem. It's written in tears. I remember receiving a letter from a man who, after he became a Christian, was living in a country where it was a dreadful thing to become a Christian, and they burned his house down with his wife and children inside. They all perished in the fire. And he wrote to tell me about this, and he wrote with blue ink, and I can see the M.A. letter now, and the drops of his tears were on the letter and the ink was running. And yet he was able to say, I forgive them because Christ forgave me. That was a country where it really cost you your life or the life of your family to become a believer in Jesus. And I just feel when I read Lamentations, you can see the tears dropping on the page and making the ink run. Here's a man weeping his heart out. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called simply tears. In the Hebrew, of course, it's simply called how, because that's the first word on the scroll, how. But in Greek, it's called tears, and the Latin from which we get the word lamentation is also the word for tears. So here we have a very sad book. You can only manage to find a few crumbs of comfort in it. It's really written when he saw the city of Jerusalem absolutely desolated. If you can get a picture of Hiroshima in your mind. And then think that Jeremiah was looking at the city of God, Jerusalem and the temple, and that's all he saw. The whole thing pulled to the ground and burnt and desolate. It had been a terrible siege, the last one, terrible. Mothers were eating their own babies and even eating the afterbirth of women who were giving birth. They were desperate. The whole thing is so, so sad. And so he weeps. Now, we know Jeremiah was a poet because most of his prophecies were in poetic form. We know he was also musical and he wrote songs. There is this astonishing relationship between prophecy and music. Uh, The spirit of prophecy inspires poetry and music. When Zechariah prophesied, he asked people to play music to him and then he would prophesy. Ezekiel did the same. And uh, David was the biggest prophet, in a sense, in the Old Testament after Moses and Elijah. David, when he died, thanked God that he'd been a prophet and the sweet singer of Israel. And whenever he appointed a choir master, he always appointed a prophet to lead the choir. My, how much you need to do that. There used to be a saying in the church circles in which I was brought up, if the devil wants to join your church, he joins the choir because when music gets out of hand and becomes professional, 
It doesn't serve God. And uh, that's why David was careful to say, I want singers who are seers. And people like Asaph he appointed as choir master because he was prophetic and he could see things God's way. And oh, happy are you if in your church the musicians are prophetic and see things from God's point of view. I'm sorry, we, we just give young, inexperienced Christians charge of the music. It is so wrong. They are not mature enough to see what God wants out of music and it's not fair on them. Anyway, Jeremiah did compose songs and he did compose another lament which is actually mentioned in the book of Chronicles and it was when the boy King Josiah mistakenly against the word of the Lord thought he could defeat the Egyptians and was killed at Megiddo. And just as David lamented over Saul and Jonathan when they were killed in battle against the Philistines, Jeremiah composed a lament for the whole nation to sing when the boy King Josiah was dead and the promise of his reign brought to an untimely end. So Jeremiah was used to writing these songs and here we have a song written by someone who was there. It's written by an eyewitness and I want you to see Jeremiah standing looking at the wrecked buildings and the deserted streets of this city. Everybody's been taken. The Babylonians have left him alone. And you can hear him as he stands there saying, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Aren't you touched, he says, by such a dreadful sight? because there were still people somewhere in the land and he would see them wandering past. Is it nothing to you? You that pass by, that's how it opens. And it's a remarkable lament. He's saying, look, see, take a look. Doesn't it touch the very depths of your being? And yet the whole thing is, in a sense, artificially put together. It's composed, it's not just pouring out his feelings, it's very carefully structured. For once, the chapter divisions are in the right place. Hallelujah. And in fact, it is composed of five songs, five laments, and they are very beautifully and carefully put together. Now, here's a bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, here he is pouring out his feelings over the city and yet he is putting them together in a rather artificial way and the device he uses is what we call acrostic. And an acrostic is using the letters of the alphabet as a kind of framework of your song or poem. And uh, these five poems, at least four of them, are acrostic poems. And therefore, they are either 22 verses or multiples of 22 verses since there are only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet where there are 26 in ours. Ours is A, B, C, D, E, F, G and so on, 26 letters, but the Hebrew only has 22. And incidentally, the Hebrews hadn't any vowels, A, E, I, O, U, they only used consonants. So rabbit was spelt R, B, T. And uh, so they used these 22 consonants and they just didn't use vowels, so that's why it's about 22 compared to our 26. The first poem has 22 verses 
one for each letter and three lines to each verse. So each of the three lines begins with the letter A in the first verse and then the next verse is three lines beginning with B and so on. So that's what we mean by an acrostic. Similarly, the second poem he wrote to be sung is also an acrostic of 22 verses with three lines to each verse and each verse begins with one letter. But the third is much longer and there are 66 verses in which each of three verses is, uh, sorry I misled you here, the three lines don't all begin with the letter, the first line begins with the letter and the first line begins with the letter but here we have three verses for each letter and each with three lines so it's three times as long and that's the major chapter that we're going to look at. The fourth goes back to 22 verses with uh, two lines to each verse now but again the first line begins with the next letter of the alphabet. The only one that doesn't uh, follow the letters of the alphabet is the last one and it's not acrostic but in fact it is still 22 verses so that there is a kind of artificial construction here, there's something that's been thought through and just as a, a little experiment I was asking myself why did he use such a strange device as the alphabet to express his feelings? Uh, I tried to think well did that make it easy to remember possibly and then I thought well does this kind of express his total grief, his A to Z grief as if he's saying it's just you know alpha to omega it's, it's beginning to end, it's just total grief. I thought, no, that doesn't quite make sense, running the whole gamut of his feelings. And then I tried a little experiment, and I don't know what you'll think of this. I took a piece of paper, there it is, and I wrote down A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the 26 letters of our alphabet. And I thought, I wonder if that would help me to pour out the teaching of lamentations, the, the themes of lamentations. I wonder if an alphabet helps you to express yourself when you can't put things into words and I found that's exactly what it does and it took me less than two minutes to write out Jeremiah's lamentations against the letters of the English alphabet and I thought so that's why he probably used it because he was finding it so difficult to put his feelings into words that he just wrote down the alphabet and I found that it's much easier to compose a lamentation when you've got a bit of a start with the letter. Do you follow me? Because that limits the words you can use and I just say that this took about a minute and a half to write, I'm not claiming it's great, but I just found it flowed because the letter gave me something to hang my thoughts on. Do you follow? So I just read it through but actually I think it summarises the whole book of Lamentations. So I wrote A, B, C, D and then I began to just write, awful is the sight of the ruined city, blood flows down the streets, catastrophe has come to my people, dreadful is their fate, every house has been destroyed, families are broken forever, God promised he would do this, Holy is his name. I am worn out with weeping, just broken in spirit, 
Let me die like the others. My life has no meaning. Never again will I laugh or dance for joy. Please comfort me, Lord. Quiet my spirit. Remind me of your future plans. Save your people from despair. Tell them you still love them. Understand their feelings. Vent your anger on their destroyers. Exterminate our enemies. We will again exalt your name, zealous for your reputation. And I found that I'd covered every note that is sounded in Lamentations. And just putting down the alphabet helped me to do that. And I just felt I understood why he used the alphabet. He was wanting to get his feelings down on paper, but not knowing where to begin. And so he just wrote down the alphabet and said, that'll help me get going. And I just sensed, maybe I'm wrong, but I just sensed, hey, I think that's why he did it. It just helped him to get it out and to think of a word that began with the next letter to move him on. Well, you can make of that what you will. But we need to remember the past to learn from it. I then began to ask, why did he write all these? And I realised he wanted others to weep with him and to sing these songs. And I think he wanted to send them to the people taken away in exile that they might express their feelings too. One of the most important things when you've gone through a disaster is to express your feelings, to grieve. It is cruel to the bereaved to say, oh, she was so brave, she never shed a tear. That is so wrong. We need to help people to get it out. And both the Jews and the Catholics are the best at handling bereavement because they have a tradition of wakes when they encourage tears. And throughout the Bible, tears are encouraged. Get it out. Don't suppress it, but I'm afraid English public school stoicism, taken from Greek stoicism, says don't wear your heart on your sleeve and you know, keep a stiff upper lip. I'm afraid we admire people who don't weep in Western civilization, which comes from Greece, from Greek thinking and not from Hebrew thinking. An American vice president broke down in tears at one of his election meetings. His name was off the list immediately. We don't want a president who cries. Same thing happened to Bob Hawke in Australia. He went onto television and the interviewer asked him about his drug addict daughter and he burst into tears. And I'm afraid the tough Australians looked down on Bob Hawke from then on. But in Israel, a man would never be able to be prime minister unless he can weep over the grave of an Israeli soldier. Because in Israel, in Hebrew thinking, it takes a man to weep. Interesting, isn't it? That's why Jesus wept openly over Jerusalem, as Jeremiah does here. It's not a sissy thing to do, it's a manly thing to do, to be able to cry. Well, let's look at the poems. The next thing I noticed about the poems was that the personal pronoun changes with each chapter. The first poem, the personal pronoun is she, referring to the city and to the people of the city who are called daughters of Jerusalem. And cities are seen as feminine. And the people of the city are seen as feminine. That's even a tradition in English, but it is in Hebrew. 
and so cities are female. And at the end of the book of Revelation, Babylon is she, the filthy prostitute, and Jerusalem is she, the bride coming down out of heaven. So that's about the city and its inhabitants. Then in the second poem, the personal pronoun is all he, and it is a poem about the person who's caused all this disaster, he. It's about God. And then the third poem, the longest, becomes very personal and it's all about Jeremiah himself, I. It becomes very personal. And then his vision goes out to the nations and he talks about they. He's talking about those who have attacked the city. And finally he identifies with the people who've gone into exile who will one day return and talks about we. Now again you can see when you've studied the Bible carefully, notice little words, notice the personal pronouns. They're a clue to what it's all about. Do you see? If you just read through Lamentations, you've probably done so, you can just read it through and not notice that you've got five very different themes here. I've given them a different title. The poem, first poem I've called Catastrophe. Look at the ruined city and her daughters. The second poem I've called Cause. He did it. God did it. And he did it because of our sin. The third, The Cure. And he realises in himself that God's mercy is still available and his faithfulness is still there and he cries out for that faithfulness. I'll come back to all these. Next, the consequences. What will happen as a result of all this? And finally, uh, the cry from his heart, we. And he pleads for the future of his people. Very moving, these poems. Let's just go through them in a greater detail. I don't think I need to say more about the first, the catastrophe, you know what it was. The whole city had been besieged and then destroyed, taken down stone by stone. The temple was gone, the houses were gone, the people were gone. It was just a ruin, empty, desolate. And the description of it in that first poem is vivid. Then the second poem, he faces the fact that it need never have happened. That's what makes him really sad. That it could have been avoided even had his advice been taken to surrender to the Babylonians and not try to hold out against them, the city would still be standing. That's what gets him. It was also unnecessary. Now, when you see people ruined because they didn't take your advice, that is so painful. When you knew you could have helped them to avoid it all. And that second poem brings out this mental anguish of Jeremiah that God had had to do it because God promised to do it, but he could have changed his mind had they repented. The frustration of that, of the wasted opportunity that he'd given them, comes out very much in that second poem. And in every poem, the anger of God is mentioned five times because there comes a time when God's anger boils over. There are two kinds of anger in the Bible. There's the anger that goes in and the anger that comes out. And uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment which kind of anger you have problems with. When it goes in, you just go quiet and silent and it 
burns away inside and it, it's slow anger, it simmers and it can simmer for a long time. Then there's a kind of quick temper that comes out and blazes away and it's over with. I don't know which kind of anger you prefer to live with but I'm sure you have one or the other problems. some of you might even have both. Let's have a show of hands, those who find that their anger tends to go in and it simmers inside and those who have problems with an anger that come out suddenly. Notice I didn't put my hand up either way, <laughs> probably the second. But uh, which kind of anger do you think God's anger is? First or the second? The answer is both. Uh, you, you wives, have you ever put a pan of milk on the stove and, and forgotten about it? And suddenly <laughs> you're rushing around the kitchen like a mad woman to get the pan off and it's all burning. Had you stayed there and watched it, that wouldn't have happened because you'd have seen it simmering, right? You'd have seen it coming up and you could have saved the situation. The whole emphasis in the Bible on God's anger is if you watch it simmering, you can stop it boiling over. But if you're not watching God carefully and you don't see it simmering, you won't notice it until it boils over and the disaster happens. Do you see? That comes out in Paul's teaching in Romans on the wrath of God. It's the same teaching. And what he says in Romans 1 is that God's anger is already simmering and the signs of it simmering are there. And he gives you the signs to look for, one of which is increasing homosexuality. Did you realise that's a sign of God's anger simmering? Read Romans 1. That people exchange natural relationships for unnatural. Another sign is antisocial behaviour and breakdown of family life. These are all symptoms, if you're watching, that show God's anger is simmering against a people. And all that's going to go on until it boils over and then everybody will know he's angry. Book of Revelation, same theme. And so we have this anger of God in all these five poems and Jeremiah's problem is when it was simmering, nobody would take it seriously. That's why it boiled over and the crisis came. My, how we need to be aware of God's feelings so that we are aware when it's simmering against us so that it doesn't boil over. But that's the anger of God. Now the third poem is the personal one and there's a lovely, um, lovely phrase in it that we're going to sing in a moment because it's become one of our favourite hymns. He realises that God could have wiped out all the people as well in his anger, but he hadn't. He'd sent them to Babylon, but they were still alive. The people had not been extinguished. The nation was still a nation. And he said, it's of your mercies that we are not consumed. Consumed mean totally destroyed. And God's mercy he praises in that third poem. The anger is still there but he praises his mercy. Now sometimes I feel like a Christian first thing in the morning, not often, but sometimes when I wake up I feel like a Christian. I don't feel like a Christian in the middle of the night when Australians love to phone me up <laughs> and they don't get a very Christian response at my end of the phone. In fact, one man rang me up and he said, uh, I thought I'd catch you just before you got to bed and this was three in the morning. He said, I've got a new watch that tells me what time it is all over the world. 
and I said, uh, did you set the watch? <laughs> but anyway, sometimes when I wake up in the morning I feel like a Christian, so I go downstairs to make the tea. See, my wife always had a daily fix. I didn't until I got married, but now I have to have this daily fix to get going. And so I go down and I go out of the front door when there's no milk in the fridge and I pick up two bottles of milk, walk back in with them. It's cold out there. And I never do it without thinking of a verse in Lamentations chapter 3. Your mercies are fresh every morning. <laughs> and I come back in and I just run quickly through my mind the mercies of God. I'm fairly fit for an old age pensioner. That's a mercy, it's not a right. I've got work to do, that's not a right, that's a mercy. We've got a home to live in, a roof over our heads, that's not a right, that's a mercy because I don't deserve any of them. And you're able to say, Father, your mercies are fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, the world lives by merit, M-E-R-I-T. We live in a meritocracy. You get what you work for. But in the kingdom of heaven, the basis of life is M-E-R-C-Y, mercy. The world talks about rights and holds its fist like this, I demand my rights. A Christian says, I have no rights. I don't deserve a thing. Therefore, what I receive is a mercy. And your mercies are fresh every morning. It's a beautiful phrase. And it's right there in the middle of this very personal poem that's about his own feelings. And he manages to get over the grief by realizing that God has not consumed everybody and that in his mercy he's kept some of them alive and that his mercies are fresh every morning. I love that poem. We're going to sing about it in a moment. Then he moves on. Now it's they. He's talking about other people, not about himself now. And he recalls that when people repent, God can cure the problem. But that if they don't, he has to punish. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little mixed up, not cure. That the consequences of not repenting are what he's seen. And he wants everybody to know this, them out there. He wants the message to get right out. And then he moves on from that to the cry. And the last poem is simply a prayer. It's, it's a plea for God's mercy to restore the nation one day and put them back in their land. The other theme that comes in all five, apart from the anger of God, and the wrath of God is the mercy of God. And there is another theme that comes all the way through too, and that is the word sin. I read a statement recently, I couldn't believe and I checked it out and it's true, that almost every page of the Old Testament has sin in it. Sometimes just the word, sometimes the action, but the Old Testament is full of sin. New Testament's full of salvation. There's salvation on almost every page, but in the Old Testament it's sin. 
And Jeremiah acknowledges honestly its sins that have done all this. But he cries to God for mercy. Sin deserves punishment, but he's crying to God for something more than they deserve, the mercy that will restore them. That's why we call this book Lamentations, plural, because it's really five different songs of lament and sorrow. Now let's move on. To this very day, the whole of Lamentations is sung once a year in every synagogue. It's sung on the particular date, the 9th of Aviv, A-B-I-B, but it's pronounced like a V. On the 9th of Aviv, which is the month of July in our calendar, it is sung every year because that is the exact date on which the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And so every year to this day, Jews who remember the exodus in the Passover, they remember the loss of the temple on the 9th of Aviv. Every July you can go to the synagogue and you'll hear them sing. And they sing it in such a mournful voice. When you hear a rabbi lamenting, boy, I've never heard such music to go through your heart. I once had to speak outside the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. That's the memorial to the Holocaust, six million dead. And there were hundreds of Jews and Christians in the courtyard outside against the row of trees which commemorate the righteous Gentiles. There's a tree for Corrie ten Boom, for example, and others who saved Jews in the Holocaust. And I stood there and it began with Mervyn Merler Watson from Canada singing and playing a lament. And uh, Merla Watson just stood up with her violin and she just played in the spirit a lament. Then a rabbi got up with a beard and he sang lamentation. I've never heard anything like it. And then I had to speak after that. And we were going to do it two days running, but God was so powerfully present on that one day that we couldn't repeat it. I said, I can't do that again. And it was so powerful. There's something about lamenting. And all their history seemed to come out in their dirge. And uh, you'll hear that if you go to a synagogue every July. The amazing thing is that the ninth of Abib, or Aviv as we should call it, is not only the day they lost the first temple, it's the same day identically that Titus came in AD 70 and smashed the second temple. On the exact date when they were lamenting the loss of the first, they lost the second. And Jesus, of course, predicted that. Which brings me to a very important point. Just as Jeremiah came to warn them about the first loss of the temple, Jesus came to warn them about the second. And that is why Jesus and Jeremiah have been bracketed together so often. When Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, come back. You're a reincarnation of Jeremiah. Now why would they make that link? Well, because Jesus himself made it. He was the good shepherd whom Jeremiah had predicted. He was the Davidic king. He was the redeemer, the great physician. But even more, Jeremiah's life was a perfect parallel to Jesus' life. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's Jeremiah's word, that's Jesus. Because the first time they tried to kill him, was in the little town of Nazareth where he'd been brought up and they tried to throw him off a cliff. The parallel is remarkable.
Jesus escaped five assassination attempts. Like Jeremiah, his life was very near the end more than once. They tried to stone him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. You read, there were five attempts, but Jesus always got free and said, my time has not come yet. And when Jesus cleansed the temple and went in with a whip against the Jews who were turning the temple into a greedy money changer's centre, what did he say but quote Jeremiah, how dare you make my father's house into a den of thieves. Jesus was a Jeremiah and in the popular mind they saw this and so he spoke to them, he said, you stone the prophets and then you erect their memorials. Jeremiah himself at one stage said, I feel like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who does that remind you of? One of the most amazing coincidences is this. On the north side of Jerusalem is a cave where there is a very strong Jewish tradition which calls it Jeremiah's Grotto because they believe that that's where Jeremiah went to pray when he was lonely and hurt and in pain. And uh, you can go and see that grotto. It's a cave in a hill called Golgotha. It's just round the corner from the garden tomb and the face of the skull. Jeremiah's grotto is next door to where we believe Jesus died on the cross. I once spent a night in that hill, inside the hill I slept all night in a cave next to the tomb. I didn't sleep a wink. <laughs> it was the most unusual experience lying on a camp bed in that cave near where Jeremiah prayed and just underneath where the cross was and next to the empty tomb. Jeremiah is linked with Jesus all the way through. One of the things Jesus said on his way up to Calvary is one of the tests I often give when I want to test whether people know the Bible. I say, I'm going to give you a, a text and I want you, or a, a statement. I want you to tell me if it comes from the New Testament, the Old Testament or William Shakespeare. <laughs> then I take a vote on it. And the statement is this, if they do these things in the green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And it's what Jesus said as he carried his cross when he said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves for the days are coming. And he was pointing to AD 70, just 40 years ahead, 40 years being the time of testing and God gave the Jews 40 years to respond to his crucified and risen son but they didn't and 40 years later the temple was pulled down again. An amazing parallel. But I want to finish. Why is the book of Lamentations in our Bible? Why do we need to read it? Well, there are two reasons. One is that the church could suffer the same fate. There are two destinies held before believers in the New Testament. One is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Whenever Jesus said that, he was talking to believers, his own disciples. And the other possible destiny for us as the people of God is God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And in a sense, the two destinies facing us are weeping forever or having God wipe away the tears. 
love that verse. I just see God taking a great big hanky out and saying, there's no need to cry anymore. Come here and I'll wipe away the tears. That's what a good father does. And that phrase occurs twice in the book of Revelation, and God shall wipe away all tears. You either weep forever or you have your tears wiped away. And not only that, but the world is facing this because the book that quotes Jeremiah and Lamentations more than any other is the book of Revelation. Half of the quotes from Jeremiah are in the book of Revelation and they're applied to the city of Babylon which is the final world finance centre, the city that's going to be destroyed. And when Babylon is destroyed, the world will weep over it. But it says the Christians will sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Very few people listening to Handel's Messiah and that magnificent Hallelujah, 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 you know the chorus? Realise that it's a celebration that the World Stock Exchange has gone bust <laughs> and that the world banks have all gone bankrupt, that the whole system that man was building up has collapsed. I tell you, the only people singing in that day will be the Christians. Nobody else will be, they'll all be weeping and mourning. And so this, this Revelation chapter 18 finishes with quote after quote from Jeremiah and Lamentations and finishes, Woe, woe, O great city, in one hour she has been brought to ruin. So it's an appropriate song which one day the world will sing, but when the world sings it, we'll be singing the Hallelujah Chorus because God will bring a new city down from heaven to earth, the new Jerusalem, like a bride adorned for her husband. That's where we're going to live, on a new earth, in a new Jerusalem, forever and ever with our Father, His Son and the Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.